I don't know what those white people in this country feel. I can only include what they feel from the state of their institution. Now, this is the evidence. You want me to make an act of faith, risking myself, my wife, my woman, my sister, my children, on some idealism which you assure me exists in America, which I have never seen. Welcome to Black History for White People, a podcast where we educate, resource, and challenge white people about black history. I'm Brad, and on today's show are my co-hosts, Katina and Aaron. Today's topic is Carter G. Woodson. We're starting off Black History Month by exploring the legacy of one of black history's most notable men. We wanted to share the story of the person who literally created what we now know of as Black History Month. His story is amazing, and we hope you find it just as inspiring as we did. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. Okay, so I let Katina and Garen know that I don't know anything about who we're going to talk about today, and they just laughed at me, and so I'm excited to actually learn about this, and I know that, at least from when they were mocking me before we hit recording, <laughs> that he has something to do with the development of Black History Month, and so it is Black History Month, and so we this is the month that we come out with an episode every week, so... Happy Black History Month. Happy Black History Month. And that means that instead of two episodes this month, we will come out with four. So that's kind of cool. Come on now. Um, and yeah, so Carter G. Woodson, hope, hopefully I'm saying that right. We're going to dive into who he is, what he's done, his legacy, and what I should know and our listeners. I bet most of our listeners probably are in the same boat as me. They don't, they don't know. So, Karen, help us out. What, what do we need to know? So let's actually start by just telling his story and walking through it and seeing the twists and turns of where his life went. Carter G. Woodson was born in New Canton, Virginia, in Buckington County on December 19, 1875, so 10 years after the Civil War. His parents, James Henry and Anne Eliza Woodson, were former slaves, and they shared with him firsthand recollections of life during slavery. Just putting yourself in that moment, like what life would have been like for him post-slavery, just a reminder that after slavery ended, black people graduated into immediate debt servitude Mm -hmm. because the very homes that they went back to the day after, the day one of freedom, were not owned by them. And so they immediately were freed into debt servitude of the people whose, you know, the former slave quarters that they many of them continued to live in were owned by the plantation owners who then charged them rent and forced them into the oppressive sharecropping system. There was for, you know, 12 years during Reconstruction, there was some opportunity for Black people to have free movement and the ability to kind of escape into better circumstances. But then when that ended and when the North pulled out of the South, most Black people who were still there got trapped into sharecropping in this kind of, it was designed to be a trap to just force continued labor for, and we've talked about this before, in about 80% of cases, sharecroppers didn't get any money at the end of a harvest season. About 80% of the time, they were working essentially for free. Any money that was due to them was just taken in payment of supposed debt and supplies of like the houses they were living in, the supplies, the tools that they used in the field. Yeah. The planters wouldn't actually give them money. And so that was the world back then in the South. And Woodson was one of nine children, including two siblings who later tragically died from whooping cough. And Woodson's mother was literate. She 
valued and taught him some early education. He didn't have a lot of access to education early on, but his mother kind of being literate helped him to learn. And there's accounts that he later shared of how his father, who was not literate, would have him just crawl up into his lap and read newspaper, old newspaper clippings, whatever they could get their hands on. And Woodson would comment that it was stale news, but it was still some kind of window into the wider world. And so what opportunities he had to kind of grasp onto some level of education, he did from an early age. He would later write of his childhood, quote, You should know enough about me to understand that I am the most independently hungry man in the United States. I once drove a garbage wagon in my hometown, toiled for six years as a coal miner, often saw the day when my mother had her breakfast and did not know where she would find her dinner. Many a time it was necessary for me to retire early on Saturday night that my mother might wash out my only clothing that I had, that I might have something clean to wear the following day. Often, during the winter, the early stages, and early in spring, we did not have sufficient food, and we would leave the table hungry to go to the woods and pluck the persimmons, which the birds had pierced with their beaks and left in the trees. Sometimes in the fields, we had to eat sour grass, which grew early in the spring in the providence of God. So, it was a struggle with poverty and racial oppression that in that time, this would not have been an uncommon description of childhood, sadly. And with that, I mean, we'll talk a little bit later about Carter G. Woodson, and we've talked about this with a lot of historical figures, that we should not approach any human figure, but especially with black figures of history, we shouldn't approach them with the expectation of perfection. And one of the, like, if you could say there was a character flaw for Carter G. Woodson, I think we'll talk about this a little later on, that there was trauma from his childhood that did continue to kind of haunt him. And part of that manifested in just kind of like a hardness where he would, he was kind of known as being harsh. Like he would jump to criticizing others. And some of his friends later connected that back to some of this early childhood difficulty and trauma. Part of that I think is worth highlighting because it just fits with like the reality of our lives that we as humans can be both noble and have struggle and that that's okay. And there's, I think, a beauty in validating the value of Carter G. Woodson in celebrating all the good that he did and like giving space for him not to have to be perfect. Well, and I think that with black figures, mainstream society is so quick to try to villainize black figures and delegitimize their legacy. We've seen that with Martin Luther King. We've seen that with so many. And it's like, give them the same grace that you give your average white person Give them as much grace as, as you've given them the given to the president that you voted for. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's like, why do we have to treat historical black figures or, you know, black men and women as if we need to toe a line of perfection in our lives when white people are the first ones to say, give them a chance, or I'm glad that God doesn't judge me by the things that I've done. You know, it's like, People get to be human, but also in light of racism and trauma and the disparities and the residuals of enslavement. Yes, people, what we don't talk about is that Black people, 
they may come up and do amazing things or overcome or whatever, but it doesn't mean that trauma is going to escape them. We often leave out the conversation of trauma and the effects of intergenerational trauma, cascading trauma, you know, we, we leave those out of the conversation and we need to include them, as Garen is pointing out, because that humanizes. A, the per, a, a person is not the sum of the things that they do or the sum of their accomplishments. Everything that it took to get them there is to be considered. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it, I think I talk about it a lot, but I just, we can't, as white people, really sympathize with that. You know what I mean? Like, I don't, it's hard to even imagine being a black or brown person in those times, let alone now. And there's just a realization that, yeah, you have to give some room. And really that's good for anybody in your life to not be perfect. And Right. Uh, but especially when it when you're crossing like racial boundaries and, and, and there's just like there's part of it is I just don't know. I don't I don't know what I can't imagine. Well, and another thing is that we see this in the media. It plays out that there is a sensitivity to white people who commit crimes and who are offenders or who have character flaws. For example, these kids that end up shooting up the schools or shooting up wherever, the first story that comes out after you know the heinous act is committed is that they had mental health issues they go to their childhood you know they post pictures of them as a little boy or a little girl whereas with black people if black people commit crimes or if they do something then the first thing you hear about the first thing you see you basically hear about they smoked weed or just anything or to the criminalize. The picture will be like a mugshot, right? Or, or just some picture of them mean mugging, or mm-hmm. it's like black people in Black history get to be human too, mm-hmm. and we get to we get you 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 have to explore why people are sometimes the product of their environment, the environment that was created for them, and I applaud people like Mr. Woodson because of the fact that he. Growing up the way he did post-enslavement, his family, you know, like you said, 10 10 years after enslavement was supposedly over, the fact that his mother was literate, his father was illiterate, they had a value on education, and that he was a coal miner as well as this highly educated man. He has this amazing span of life experience that we can learn from. And if him being harsh Mm -hmm. sometimes was the worst that he could do, <laughs> mm-hmm. you the know, worst that he did out of all the things that he accomplished and overcame, then I'm I'm cool with it. Yeah. Because you got folks that are buttholes in 2021 just because that's what they feel like doing and ain't nobody done nothing to them. It also, it reminds me <laughs> of the passage in scripture where it talks about humans don't have the right to judge each other because people look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Right. That we judge people oftentimes on the sum total of what we see in their lives, but what we don't see is what people where they are compared to where they started, like where they are compared to what they're facing. Like yeah. what are I mean? We'll look at somebody who is that there might be one person who is an addict in recovery who is exerting tremendous moral energy to try to escape from and make something of themselves. And there might be another person who just lazily is, you know, occasionally indulging in some kind of vice. And then we'll look at them and they look the same on the outside when in reality their hearts are completely in different places. Yeah, so just looking at Woodson and seeing the fact that he overcame 
a childhood of deprivation where yeah, like yeah. that like and that is a form of trauma like food scarcity is a form of trauma that affects the brain in ways that people who haven't experienced it can't even like properly empathize with and to overcome that and to do all he did and then we'll see later like where his moral exertion moved him to these incredible lengths yeah to i don't have to like describe it now fully because we're going to tell you the things that he did is moving and impressive and so let's let's get into it well i just wanted to add that in talking about you because you brought up the bible i know some listeners hate that we bring it up but black people you can't talk about black history without talking about christianity especially in america but the thing about it is that for evangelicals or christians when we talk about different figures in the Bible and we romanticize and glorify them, we oftentimes don't look at them as human. So like Noah, Noah saw everybody around him die. All his neighbors, you know, some of the kids that he grew up with, all these people except for this small, you know, his small family, his small nucleus, he saw them drown and die. And then, you know, after they get on dry land, after being on an ark with a bunch of funky animals and, you know, that experience, he gets wasted. <laughs> he gets white girl wasted. Like, he gets drunk. <laughs> and it's like, you could judge him as an alcoholic, but I'm like, if I saw the whole earth swallowed up in water, I'd probably be more than drunk. And you think about David, who was, you know, for all intents and purposes, a whore. And it's not, it's, he, he had a bunch of women, which was awful. I mean, David did a bunch of horrible stuff. But then you go back to his childhood and his dad left him out when they came looking for, you know, looking at his kids. He, he brought all his sons out except for David. And he, David probably had some daddy issues. <laughs> you know, I mean, you, you look at people, you look at their stories and you can, you can find humanity by just looking at some of their experiences and linking it, just like you said, that some people in Mr. Woodson's life, they acknowledged and saw the connector of his childhood and his personality. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, and I love that TV shows have started to do more of this where they'll take... It used to be the case that in cinema, there was the bad guy wearing black and the good guy wearing white and they were just perfect and evil. Right. But now there's a lot of TV shows that have started to play with this idea of the heroes you realize like have problems and the villains you realize have like trauma and reasons. The sympathetic villain or... What is it? What do they call it? The yeah, like a sympathetic villain. villain? I think. Yeah, yeah and, and and that's more like true to our lives. That as yeah. humans, we have both this dignity and this bent and this fall. And what we're fighting with, with you know, our inner demons doesn't justify our the way that we commit evil against other people, but it does call us to empathy with other people, even in their brokenness, to see what they what they're fighting and yeah. what that com- where that comes from if we actually knew if we if you could walk into a prison today in America and actually know the story of every person there like actually see their experiences their childhood what they faced what they were deprived of 
the influences they had, if you could actually know their story the way God does when he tours, you know, when he, like he sees the heart, like if you could see from his perspective and know the stories of the people there, you would first be moved to tears and then you would have empathy and love. And there'd be a richer kind of understanding that you would have from that of both the potential and the brokenness of humanity. And we should be pursuing that and learning how to empathize with, with people, even when they're uh, when they have flaws So scratch any of that out That you need to scratch out Because we went off on the tangent And I'm sorry So let's get into it Alright So then at age 20 Woodson returned to Huntington, West Virginia To live with his parents And he attended Frederick Douglass High School And from there He went to Berea College in Kentucky He took a break for one year Because he didn't have the money To continue the study So he had to stop for a year To work to earn more money to go in. And one thing that maybe just as an aside to say here is think the fact that brilliant mind, like he was probably, you know, genius level IQ, like a brilliant mind, everyone who knew him said that. And, and the fact that he became everything he did, went to Harvard, all the things he did, despite all the deprivations of his childhood, this just reiterates that point of how much we have lost because of racial oppression. Like, think of if this man had had the opportunity to receive an early childhood education. Like, how much smarter he even would have been if it wasn't at age 20 that he started attending high school because he had to work for six years as a coal miner after working as a sanitation worker. And just the loss of opportunity, even as brilliant as he was, there's still it's an indictment against white racism that he couldn't have even a, a, a better starting point to use that mind. And more potential to do to go even further than he did. Yeah. It's like, as it is, he changed the world. I think it's really cool and worth noting that when he was teaching, when he took that break for a year, that he taught the children of black coal miners, I think, in West Virginia. I think that is so... I bet he had so much to pour into those kids having, you know, shared their experience mm-hmm. and having been a coal miner himself. Yeah. Yeah, having both the the draw to education and the coal miner kind of a laborer uh, connection. Yeah. yeah. Then after going back to Berea and graduating from Berea, he returned to Frederick Douglass High School now as the principal rather than he had formerly been a student there. Wow. Which is really cool. And it also is just a note teachers who listen to this podcast. Be nice to your students because you never know if they might return and be your principal in the mm-hmm. future. How about it? I, I wonder what that would have been like for the relationship with him now being the principal of teachers who had previously been authority over I him. would love to see that with my to. fourth grade teacher, Miss Hannon. <laughs> She's out there somewhere. You gonna put on black. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. That, she was okay. I mean, she wasn't. Listen, and then you go dig. <laughs> listen here. <laughs> it's okay if you're listening. It was Miss Hannon, you've been called out. Okay, Miss I mean, Hannon. I'm not gonna be a principal. We okay. watching you. <laughs> <laughs> But then from there, he traveled abroad. He actually, from December 1903 to 1907, he traveled abroad to the Philippines Mm -hmm. with the U.S. War Department to train the Filipinos to govern themselves. He taught English, health, and agriculture, which is just interesting to see him. That is kind of where some of his ability to teach was formed in a cross-cultural context. And I think that there's some interesting value to that that when you move across cultural lines, it makes you examine the world from a broader perspective. And a yeah. lot of the black figures we've looked at yeah, I was gonna say traveled that. internationally. Yeah. And this is actually just a general point and feeds back into some of the things we talked about before. 
children who are raised internationally, like third culture kids, are actually significant more likely to be on the who's who of America list, which says something that something about being multicultural. Actually, multicultural immigrants are more likely to be entrepreneurs, we've talked about. People in, in multicultural relationships are also like someone from one culture who's married to someone from another culture, regardless of what cultures they are, are also more likely to be entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's something interesting that happens when people are in multiple, multiple cultures or forced to confront multiple cultures. And part of what it does is it forces you to ask questions that before you just assumed. Yeah. Kind of like the fish who's swimming in water doesn't realize he's in water, but when he encounters air, suddenly he realizes he sees the water differently too. So moving across cultural lines helped Woodson, I think, refine his ability to communicate information with less assumptions and to refine his teaching style in a way that probably helped him. And he mastered French and Spanish while he was there. It's like, no big deal. You're have a full-time job and learning another culture and you're just going to master multiple other languages. Dang. Which just shows his brilliance. So then after his tour in the Philippines, he returned, but he stopped for a while in Europe on the way back. He saw Africa and then stopped and furthered his studies a little bit for a few months in Europe as well. He studied European history in France. Yeah, that's right. And he traveled Asia as well as uh, Africa and Europe. Mm Mm-hmm. So then he returned and attended Harvard, where his experiences proved pivotal. And going to Harvard gives you the credibility to, to do you know, whatever you want after that, because that's a great thing to have on your resume. But then also he was shaped by a particular experience at Harvard. So I'm sure the, the whole education sure proved invaluable, but there's one experience that sharpened his own life mission. And that was when he was in a history class with the renowned American historian, Edward Channing. So Edward Channing taught a class and said that the Negro had no history. And Woodson immediately challenged that. And he retorted, no people lacked a history. And then Channing, this renowned historian, told him, prove me wrong. And Woodson accepted the challenge. And that became his mission. That became the driving force where he was operating out of a desire to prove from that point on that African-Americans did have a history. Yeah. And to give a backstory to black history in the world. So he did that initially after graduating. He did that by forming the ASNLH, which is the Association for the Study of Negro Life and History. And he formed it in Washington, D.C. in 1915. And so he set about this work of starting to learn and preserve and build African-American history. In D.C., he served as a dean briefly of Howard University, the School of Liberal Arts, and he introduced the teaching of black history there. He was actually a controversial figure because he kind of butt heads with the white-dominated administration and had some problems with them. So he left Howard after a year. And he belonged to a wide range of activist organizations, including the National Urban League, the Washington branch of the NAACP, the Negro Alliance, and he participated in various NAACP marches and activism efforts. Okay, something I did not know was that Howard had a white-dominated administration. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think actually a lot of the early black universities had white administrations that were kind of involved and sometimes they had white boards that were actually 
making decisions. Hmm. That um, is crazy. I know we. I didn't want to do an episode on HBCUs, so mm-hmm. hopefully at some point we can do that. Yeah, yeah, it'd be interesting to. I didn't really know that. anybody from Howard. Just go ahead and reach out to us. He was at Howard for a year, and then I, I just want to take a minute to talk about what it means that he was in Washington D.C. and paint the picture, kind of update the picture of what that would have looked like. Because now he's out of sharecropping world. He's in this Washington D.C. What was the racial scene at that point there in Jim Crow? So Marvin Kaplan of the D.C. Anti-Discrimination Committee from long ago summarized it this way. He said, quote, By 1950, segregation by law and by custom was firmly entrenched in Washington. Segregated restaurants were only one reflection of a racially divided city. Black Washingtonians encountered segregation in the most fundamental aspects of their daily lives. Housing and public schools were segregated. Only one hospital, Freedman's, admitted blacks without segregation, and several would not admit black patients at all. While the federal government offered some opportunities for skilled employment, blacks in the main were relegated to perform the capital's menial tasks, as its messengers, porters, day laborers, and domestics. Blacks who ventured downtown found most hotels and movie houses closed to them. The National Theater, Washington's one legitimate playhouse, excluded blacks. Most recreation facilities, public and private, were segregated as well. Glen Echo, the area's one amusement park, was closed to blacks, a restriction that left countless black youngsters heartbroken. So the city was segregated and black people lived in a second-class citizenship. Even though black people built the city. Even though they built the city in a very literal way. But not on rock and roll. But maybe. Because black people created rock and roll. Okay, (laughs) carry on. Connecting the dots. Yes. In one episode in Washington, D.C., Woodson actually, uh, tragically, was mugged. He, He describes it. He says, in the evening of the unlucky Friday, the 13th of the month, I had... My superstition confirmed beyond the shadow of a doubt. Going to the Library of Congress towards Pennsylvania, I had an unusual experience just before I reached Peace Monument, which temporarily became a scene of war. Two colored thugs rushed upon me from the rear, caught me by both my hands, stuck a gun on my side, struck me on one cheek because I came near disengaging myself from them. And before I could religiously turn the other cheek, gave me a stunning blow on the other side of my head. Seeing what I was facing, I begged them not to kill me and offered them what money I had. After dispossessing me of my $5, they ran away. This was the first time in my life I have had anyone pay me the compliment of having money. While I regret the loss of my money and cannot enjoy the sore on my head and black eye, I had the chance to learn some of the things which we read about in books or see in movies. The experience, too, was very illuminating. And if you have never had it, you have something to look forward to. His playful lightheartedness at the end of that quote is amusing to me. Um, but but what did he take from that? Did that move him towards kind of like a bitter fear of black people in the streets of D.C.? No. His response to it was empathy. He said, despite the experience, quote, so many poor people in our group have little to do now except gambling, racketeering, and stealing. They are hungry. And they are going to kill and rob before they settled down to starvation. So his path forward was to seek to address the underlying issues of what had happened. He understood that these men who mugged him were desperate. And that doesn't justify what they did, but it did drive Woodson to want to change the conditions that underlie the crime. Yeah. 
So throughout the 20s, Woodson served as the dean of West Virginia Collegiate Institute from 1922 until 29. He was prolific as an author. He published four articles in the Journal of Negro History and many books, including Free Negro Heads of Families in the United States in 1830, 10 Years of Collecting and Publishing the Records of the Negro, 1925, The Mind of the Negro as Reflected in Letters Written During the Crisis, Negro Orders and Their Orations, the Negro Makers of History, African Myths Together with Proverbs, and The Negro as Businessman. And just a few books. Just mm-hmm. a handful. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like one right, or Making two books couldn't year. have been super easy back then. Not at all. Yeah. The, the whole process behind it, and you had to actually physically track down all your primary sources. You couldn't just look up primary sources on archives. And the um, act of publishing. Digital archives. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The act of publishing is just, I, I mean, just daunting. It's mm-hmm. daunting in 2022. Mm-hmm. Yep. He lived frugally, even after met with success and after some of his books were published and he could have had access to more money. He continued to live frugally. He said, quote, I have never wanted wealth. I do not know what would become of me if I had to spend $25,000 a year on myself. I would rather have an allowance of $12 and a half a week. The only need I have for money is to relieve the stress of others. It would take up too much of my valuable time to devise selfish schemes for throwing away a large fortune, and I would not have time to help humanity. Wow. Wow, what an example. I like this guy. I do too. I mean, that is crazy. And he's like probably way smarter than anybody listening to this. And that, and he's coming up with like that's crazy. You almost would never hear somebody say. I, mean, I honestly, I don't even know if people say that. Yeah, and the the crazy thing is, he said this even after he had access to money. So right. it's one thing for a poor person to say, "No, nah, I wouldn't want money, anyways." Right. When it's kind of like, well, you're you're just like taking your condition and trying to like live in dignity under it. But he actually has access to money and and is turning it down because he wants to spend his time and focus on helping humanity. <sighs> In a 1930 tribute to Woodson, we have the following quote. The Association for the Study of of Negro Life and History has been able to balance its annual budget of $20,000 because, as in former years, the director, Carter G. Woodson, has served without compensation. He has blazed a new trail. He has put old truths to new light. He has brought a new light to those who sat in darkness. He has made it possible for every Negro lad to hold his head a little higher and set his chin a little firmer. So that's beautiful, both for his description of what his work and purpose was, and also for the fact that he, years on end, served without compensation. He also, it doesn't mention here, borrowed thousands of dollars and leveraged himself to help support the organization and further its purpose. So, I mean, he was for real. (laughs) He He walked the walk. Yeah, he walked the walk. He also, prior to leaving for the Philippines, earlier before he traveled abroad, He had proposed to a young woman named Ursula, but she had refused him because she did not want to move abroad. So he remained a bachelor thereafter. He had a few attempts at relationships, but in his own words, quote, no woman could stand my rigid regimen. I have never married because if I had done so, in my indigent circumstances, my wife would not have a husband. When I began the work of the Association for the Study of Negro Life and History in 1915, I realized that I would have a hard struggle. I had to take a vow of poverty, and I did not proceed very far before I ran into so many unexpected difficulties that to continue the effort, I had to take also a vow of celibacy. 
Wow. Which, I mean, how many people would be willing to take a vow of poverty, vow of celibacy? Like he basically gave up the joys that most of us aim our lives around in order to further the human race and in particular the opportunity of black people to know their history and hold their heads a little higher. I think like what honor is due to someone who is willing to deliberately part with what they could have out of this life in order to love and serve others. Yeah. Yeah, that's crazy. Inspiring. I mean, mm-hmm. he, he definitely committed him, himself fully to what he felt his assignment was. Mm-hmm. So moving from a little bit of his story into, we're, we're going to talk a little bit about what he was like now, and then we'll get into a little bit of the Black History Month connection that he has. So as we mentioned earlier, he wasn't perfect, but didn't have to be. Green, who worked under Woodson, shared that he was sometimes cutting towards his employees He shared many positive memories about Woodson, who he called the master, but also said, quote, Despite the obvious greatness of the man and the adulation heaped upon him, deep down within, I believe Dr. Woodson was obsessed by a feeling of insecurity. It may have stemmed from the deprivation of his childhood. At any rate, his seeming compulsion to disparage, humiliate, or even hurt those who worked closely with him led some of us to wonder whether he feared lest some younger man, a man might push him from his intellectual stool and usurp his position. So that's part of his story too. But it's important to understand that in light of this next part, that while many have concurred that he was stern, serious, single-minded, and even impatient with those who were not as committed to his, quote, life and death struggle as he was, the ASNLH co-founder and his close friend, James E. Stamps, describes him this way. He says, quote, It is my privilege then to know Woodson. Walking and talking were his favorite recreations. Most of us, a bit younger than Woodson, loved his wit, his humor, and even his sarcasm. If you did not know him, his sharp tongue could hurt you. But whatever he said was a gem. Another friend described, quote, As a conversationalist, he would, when pressed, modestly relate marvelous incidents of his own early life, his optimistic views and worthwhile topics were impelling and contagious. And also, I think that this shows a lot about his inner heart and where what he cared about. Many who have chipped past his rugged exterior said that he was that he had a soft spot for children in his heart. He was never happier than when surrounded by children who idolized him. The children who lived near Woodson's office home appreciated him. He shared historical stories of African folktales with them, and he, quote, enjoyed taking little treats of candy to the neighborhood children around 9th Street or buying them ice cream. And a final kind of aspect of this that shows or fills out the picture of, of who he was is just that he mentored and served and elevated the status of black women around him and gave them voice. Jesse... H. Roy recalls how Woodson actively mentored her and other black women um, through his organization. So Black History Month started out as Negro History Week. And it was also in the month of February, but initially it was a week. And Woodson was the one who started it. In his day, there was a false story of history that he deliberately was trying to push back against. Hmm. And we've mentioned this before, it was the Lost Cause mythology that basically had recast the history of the South and of slavery and of the Civil War through a different lens. It was basically widespread propaganda and a propagandized telling of history that basically said that the Civil War was fought 
not over slavery, but over states' rights, and it was a war of northern aggression, that slavery had not been bad. It kind of put rose-colored glasses on the view of slavery and saw that slaves were better off being enslaved, that the system of slavery had been actually good for everyone and kind of just saw it with this like positive lens. So it was, it was propaganda. So but it was wait, also, hold on. Are you saying that the Civil War was fought <laughs> Because of slavery? It's funny you do this every time. Every yes. single time. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay. On the, yes. All right, cool. Yeah, I was just making sure people understand that. that yeah, the, the South, when they seceded in all their little secessions, listed slavery as the reason why they were Every seceded. single one. Yeah. So this lost cause mythology was just that. It was a mythology. Woodson called it a myth. He said, quote, it was apparently scientific, but in fact, near propaganda. And his contributions thoroughly refuted it. Throughout the 1930s, Negro History Week deliberately countered the growing lost cause myth. From his, I think most famous book is Miseducation of the Negro. Yeah. And from that book, he said, quote, At the Negro summer school two years ago, a white instructor gave a course on the Negro, using for his text a work which teaches that whites are superior to blacks. When asked by one of the students why he used this textbook, the instructor replied that he wanted them to get that point of view. Even schools for Negroes, then, are places where they must be convinced of their inferiority. The oppressor teaches the Negro that he has no worthwhile past, that his race has done nothing significant since the beginning of time, and that there is no evidence that he will ever achieve anything great. How tragic. And that's what he fought against. And so, in response to this false history and this racist, white supremacist history, Woodson invented Negro History Week, which later became Black History Month. Du Bois said that, quote, perhaps the greatest single accomplishment of the Black artistic movement of the 1920s, talking about the impact that Negro History Week had on the world. So, why is it in February? It's in February, I thought this was interesting because I didn't know this before, is that that's when the birthday of Abraham Lincoln was on February 12th, and the birthday of Frederick Douglass was on February 14th, and so various black communities had long celebrated those two birthdays in February with different events, and so he placed it in that week of February in order to kind of be in line with these celebrations that were already happening. So in 1927, Negro History Week circular, Woodson underscored and wrote, quote, we should emphasize not Negro history, but the Negro in history. That what we need is not a history of selected races or nations, but the history of the world, void of national bias, race hate, and religious prejudice. There should be no indulgence in undue eulogy of the Negro, the case of the Negro is well taken care of when it is shown how he has influenced the development of civilization. Come on. I love that. I mean, he's just saying, just give us our fair due. Yes, no undue eulogy, no like sugarcoating. Just tell the true story and that will show that we are equally participants in history and the development of civilization. Yes. He was very pleased when he saw that the Negro History Week was kind of being taken up, that it made its way into black churches, charitable organizations, public schools, and even started to filter into uh, rural areas. In 1932, he also noted that Negro History Week was finding its way into some white schools and facilitating a better Uh-oh. interracial relationships. Come on. <laughs> With each passing year, the black and occasionally white press brought more attention to the week as it happened. So it kind of grew. 
Come on now. So Negro History Week was the first major achievement in popularizing black history and was unique in that it focused on black youth. Woodson realized that the miseducation of black people began in their homes, communities, and elementary schools. His vision of Negro History Week was optimistic, and it was strategic, and it was long-term. He wanted this modest, week-long celebration to serve as a stepping stone towards a gradual introduction to black history into curriculum at all levels of the U.S. education. So he didn't want it to just be a week-long commemoration. He actually was using it strategically to introduce history that could then be widely taught. And so actually, this was at a time in history when a lot of history was just being gathered and collected and archived and written and summarized. And so... Being developed into textbooks. Yeah, there was historical work happening throughout the year. And then each year, new findings, new historical findings were summarized and presented during Negro History Week. It was almost like the annual, like, here's what we discovered this year. So there was a report on history. Here's a quote. Negro History Week should be, this is from Woodson, it should be a demonstration of what has been done in the study of the Negro during the year, and at the same time, a demonstration of greater things to be accomplished. And he instructed school teachers, quote, a subject which receives attention one week out of 36 will not mean much to anyone. So this was a way for history to be introduced and learned, but the whole point was that it would be replicated and continued to be taught and become integrated into the whole curriculum. That's genius. Mm -hmm. It is genius, and we know where he would stand today in this conversation about black history being taught. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so true. We would get him on the podcast. Come on, sir! (laughs) Yes. Mm -hmm. So he said, this is a quote, Do not call on some silver-tongued orator to talk to your school about the history of the Negro. Let the children study the history of the race, and they will be the speakers who put the spellbinder to shame. Mm. Love that. Just like this idea of empowering black children to know their own history and then let them take that into life. Yeah. Um, I, w- I wonder what someone like me, I mean, who knows what, it's all like hypothetical, I guess, but I just wonder like if we were really taught what... Like, I don't even know, remember ever hearing about this guy. So that's kind of says something, but I just wonder what, what if, what if we were taught that? Mm-hmm. History. Well, and what's so, another historical, like he, he literally is black history, but he was a member of Omega Sci-Fi, which is one of the African-American fraternities. There's the collective group is called the Divine Nine. And most of us celebrate our anniversaries, the black fraternities and sororities. Most of us celebrate our anniversaries in January. So January is a big, and most of us were founded at Howard University. Omega Sci-Fi was founded at Howard University, and he was a member. Hmm. So just so many of our black notable figures are members of one of the African-American sororities and, and fraternities, including Michelle Obama, and just so many. But I, I felt like it was mm-hmm. worthy to note that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and including Martin Luther King, and I mean, just so many. Mm-hmm. Yep. L.D. Reddick said of Woodson, his greatest influence upon the public mind came through Negro History Week. Reddick believed that the effect of Negro History Week on African-American self-confidence, poise, desire to achieve, and morale, quote, defies measurement. Yeah. So having a backstory about yourself 
that says that you can be something and that you come from a line that includes greatness does something so pivotal to the minds of children and having like a hope for a future an aspiration i mean we ask our kids in, in my family we have young children we ask them like what they want to be and do when they grow up because i grew up with that question that assumption almost that i could become something and for a child who's going through this world that sometimes can seem dangerous or scary to have instead this this mentality brought to them of you can become something and that aspiration of adults who believe in you is so important to the psyche of children and Wood- Woodson who loved and cared about children fought for them to have that yeah like that wasn't an accidental thing he wasn't just an academic he cared about children and aimed his teaching at the heart and the minds of children and i think there's something really beautiful about that. I think a lot of times people who are very intellectual can become almost intellectual for the sake of the highly intellectual, and they only talk to other PhDs. Right. Oh, but, yeah. And those, those people are not mm-hmm. fun to be around. But Woodson <laughs> loved having children around him and telling them stories. Yeah. He literally wanted to leave a legacy mm-hmm. in which African Americans could be proud of their history and legacy. I mean, to defy that one professor who said that Negroes have no history, but then also shaped by the experience of having been mugged and himself growing up impoverished, seeing, you know, basically imagining other outcomes and possibilities for African-Americans. Well, and there were probably other people in that class that have taken that same class with that same teacher yep. before mm-hmm. heard the same thing and then just accept it. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. So many people. It takes a different kind of person to... Yeah. To not back. just shove that down deep and just kind of like yeah. grow in bitterness, but mm-hmm. to actually literally do something, is, yep. it's impressive. Yeah. And, and, and it's inspirational. It mm-hmm. is. So let's run through, I want to talk briefly about some of his views on things, just to kind of tell a little bit more about what he thought about the world. And so for that, he argued that every recitation of history has a viewpoint because at the very least, it's offering some things and not others. It's telling you what's worth knowing and that the other things are not worth knowing. So he didn't have this idea of an unbiased history because there's no such thing. And I think we're actually better off admitting that we have bias. I actually would more trust someone who says, I have a bias and here's what it is than someone who says, I don't have a bias because nobody doesn't have a bias. Right. Right. So during the era of World War II, Woodson's commentaries took on a more political flavor He indicted the U.S. government for mistreating devoted black soldiers during and after the war. They were both mistreated and faced racism during the war, but then also getting home, didn't receive GI bills, or were pushed away from four-year universities into technical schools and weren't given the opportunity to get the same value from their GI bill as white veterans who returned. And they they couldn't get homes with their GI bills because of redlining, uh, a lack of access to homes that they could purchase. There were there were entire neighborhoods, massive neighborhoods built for veterans that were only open to whites. Mm. And so he indicted the government for that and even said that the U.S. policies, quote, resembled more the policies of Hitler than those of a so-called democratic nation. Which, is, well, which around that time would have been, that's would cutting. have cut pretty deep. Yes, yeah. indeed. Yeah. World War II. Throughout the remainder of the 1940s, Woodson continued to publish social commentaries at a newsletter that he created for teachers called The Bulletin. 
He attacked segregation in American social and institutional life. He condemned American imperialist and expansionist ethos post-World War II. And he scrutinized problems plaguing the black community from within. So for this next part, I'm going to read a, a quote from him, from his book, one of his most famous books, Miseducation of the Negro, to give a flavor of some more of what he thought. And this is actually a composite quote, so it's taken from a few different places of the book and kind of stitched together. He said, The philosophy and ethics resulting from our educational system have justified slavery, peonage, segregation, and lynching. The oppressor has the right to exploit, to handicap, and to kill the oppressed. Negroes daily educated in the tenets of such a religion of the strong have accepted the status of the weak as divinely ordained. No systemic effort towards change has been possible, for taught the same economics, history, philosophy, literature, and religion which have established the present code of morals, the Negro mind has been brought under the control of his oppressor. The problem of holding the Negro down, therefore, is easily solved. When you control a man's thinking, you do not have to worry about his actions. You do not have to tell him to not stand here or go yonder. He will find his proper place and stay in it. You do not need to send him to the back door. He will go there without being told. In fact, if there is no back door, he will cut one for his special benefit. His education makes it necessary. The, in quotes, educated Negro is compelled to live and move among his own people whom he has been taught to despise. As a rule, therefore, the educated Negro prefers to buy his food from the white grocer because he has been taught that the Negro is not clean. The educated Negro, moreover, is disinclined to take part in Negro business because he has been taught in economics that Negroes cannot operate in this particular sphere. The educated Negro gets less and less pleasure out of the Negro church, not on account of its primitiveness and increasing corruption, but because of his preference for the seats of righteousness controlled by his oppressor. This has been his education, to handicap a student by teaching him that his black face is a curse and that his struggle to change his condition is hopeless is the worst sort of lynching. It kills one's aspirations and dooms him to vagabondage and crime. It is strange, then, that the friends of truth and the promoters of freedom have not risen up against the present propaganda in the schools and crushed it. This crusade is much more important than the anti-lynching movement, because there would not be lynching if it did not start in the schoolroom. Why not exploit, enslave, or exterminate a class that everyone is taught to regard as inferior? The so-called school, then, becomes a questionable factor in the life of this despised people. That's the entire podcast summed up in this composite quote. Like, there are so many layers upon layers upon layers of things that he has touched on that talk about mic drop dang mm. such a powerful and such an insightful perspective and just talking about I, I think there's so much we could highlight and i don't think we need to go on into all of it for the sake of time but just the way that it gets into the idea of the system that even the education system its effect on black educated people and the way that it pulls them into a system that continues to propagate. It's not just a question of providing opportunity to have education. Right. But are you teaching people in a way that gives them dignity and helps them to become 
fully human in the way God intended? Or are you using education as a tool of power to strip people of dignity and put them into the role you want them in? And to foster self-hatred. Mm-hmm. I mean, which is, that's something that that's not discussed, is that how, how black people buy into white, the affirmation of whiteness as right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So he gathered a large collection of manuscripts and primary sources. He laid a ton of groundwork and gathered primary sources that are critical to history, and those are still in the Library of Congress. In a 1932 appeal, he said, Moving at this slow rate and in such an unsystemic way, the work will proceed so slowly that many valuable documents and the testimonies of slaves and masters will be lost to the world and the story of the Negro will perish with him. So he wanted to quickly move to gather all these primary sources so that history could remember the truth of what slavery was like and what the Civil War was fought over, what really happened. So one of Woodson's chief contributions was a regular 16-page journal called The Bulletin that we mentioned earlier that he specifically targeted to school teachers and had a kind of multiplied impact in that way. And quote from that, he felt justified in publishing it at a loss because he believed that it was finding its way into the minds of black people making black school teachers more well-rounded, inspiring black youth, and even helping to deconstruct race prejudice and foster better relations between blacks and whites. So again, you see what he was after was not money. He was publishing it at a loss in an ongoing way, like subsidizing it himself in order to have that, that impact. So Woodson died suddenly of a heart attack in 1950 on April 3rd. His staff said of him, quote, it would be impossible for anyone to carry out the multitudinous tasks that Dr. Woodson had learned through the years to perform with efficiency and dispatch. He was an incredibly effective man at, at accomplishing the work that he was doing. And purposed and driven intentional mm-hmm. with his whole life's commitment to the work. Mm-hmm. But Negro History Week didn't end when he passed away. It continued, and ultimately in 1969, it was turned into, adapted into Black History Month. It was the Black educators and the Black United students at Kent State University who made the adaptation that has caught on and has made the Black History Month that we know. And it's celebrated in the month of February every year since. And so we want to just honor him for that contribution that he made that has impacted the world. And I don't know, do we, maybe do you want to read the parting quote? Okay, so I'm going to read a quote from Carter G. Woodson to wrap up the episode. He said, We must go back to the achievements of these Black men then and looking into these Black faces of heroes and heroines get inspiration to achieve as well as they did. With a vision of these great souls looking down upon us and urging us on to complete the unfinished task to the performance of which they made an outstanding contribution. Let us press forward to the next objective in the development and uplift of the despised and rejected of men. Thank you, Mr. Woodson. You were an amazing man and... If understood, the assignment was a person, it'd be you. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you're looking for more information on what we discussed, take a look at the show notes or go to blackhistoryforwhitepeople.com. You can also support the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash blackhistoryforwhitepeople. You can support us for $5 a month. On our next episode, we are going to be discussing the Tuskegee Syphilis Study. We'll leave you with this quote from Karen Parsons. Black history isn't a separate history. This is all of our history. 
This is American history, and we need to understand that. It has such an impact on kids and their values and how they view black people.